Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. Are you enjoying the build-up to Christmas? Maybe you're not. Are you tired of the build-up to Christmas? That song, the hustle and the bustle and all of that, sometimes we're, you know, we wish it would just end. I don't know, but I love it. I actually love every bit of it. We were in stores today uh, mentioning alms. We were actually shopping for, you know, we have this program where life groups can sponsor refugee families. So we, we spent a good bit of time uh, helping our, the life groups that are partnering together to sponsor refugee family shop. And I just had a blast doing it. I was exhausted by the end, but I actually love the fact parking lots are all the way slammed out and that you can hear Christmas music out in a secular space that we're celebrating Jesus. I know you don't have to like that with me. I just like it. I love the whole thing. I love the Christmas cookies that were on the counter when I got back. I love every bit of it. I remember a few years back, uh, we were celebrating Christmas at a different place and uh, our church, uh, what they weren't, we weren't ministering to refugee families, we were ministering to those in the nursing home. Uh, which is another form of need and, and uh, loneliness at the holiday times. And it was really, it turned out to be sort of a comical moment when you thought it was going to be serious and beautiful and serene. We went into this nursing home thinking we're just really going to bless these folks. We start, uh, we start singing the carols and uh, you know that one where you sing peace on earth, goodwill and all of that. Right when we sing peace on earth, this lady just starts calling out. How can you sing that? How can you sing that? Quiet, shh, quiet. Stop singing that. She started yelling and they trying to calm her down. And we come back around to it again. We sing it again. Stop singing that. Then she finally revealed what it was. Because at the time, she said, how could you sing that? Well, bombs are dropping in Iraq. And it seemed like she was just going insane. You know, just seemed like a very old person going nuts. Really, her heart was broken for the world. And she couldn't understand how this Christmas carol matched up with bombs dropping and people dying. And so for her, the gospel at that moment was a question mark more than an exclamation point. Have you ever felt that way? I thought it was a very honest moment, stuck with me ever since. One of the Christmas carols that I'm reflecting on tonight, kind of in a similar way, although I'm not yelling out, stop singing that, or don't sing that, how can you sing that? I love this Christmas carol, don't get me wrong, Silent Night. Whenever you need to sing a cappella, very often if you're going to do a Christmas carol, Silent Night ends up being the one you do. Even in uh, secular public schools often, you'll end the choir, the, the children's choir concert with, we did in, in, our old, in our old town, we used to sing Silent Night at the end. It's secular school. Not, it's a public school, not a Christian school. And everybody in the room sings Silent night. It's a beautiful thing. It's candlelight services. We might even do that on Christmas Eve. I don't know. Hold a little candle there and sing silent night, silent night, holy night, right? Get the words in your mind. But what if you're actually wanting a word from God? When all you want in the world is God's direction, for him to be clear, For him to tell you what to do, what not to do. For him to give you an answer 
to a question, a solution to a problem, a direction for your life. When all you want is a word from God, a silent night is just another disappointment. Isn't it? I'm reminded, of course, just so you know, I changed names in a few details. My stories are always people and they're real stories, but I changed things here and there just to protect their privacy and identity, just so you know. So if you think that you know this Tony, well, his name's not actually Tony. We're going to call him Tony, okay? Tony uh, has been working as a regional sales manager now for 18, 19 years, somewhere in there. When he signed on at this regional sales job, the, the person who brought him in and recruited him, was kind of starting this business from the ground up. And so he, he had leverage, Tony did. And he said, I, well, I don't want one of those non-compete clauses. If I gather all of my friends and relationships like you're wanting me to, and I network and I get a big thing going, then if I have to leave for some reason, they're coming with me. You're asking me to sell things to family, friends, use all of my relational network, and I know you. people always want a non-compete clause. I won't sign up if you give it to me. So his boss gave in at the time because he needed to build the business, let him have that non-compete clause, and he's resented it ever since. Tony's doing a bang-up job. Sales grow, clientele grows, he gets his commission, commission grows, and, and the more it grows, the more the boss fears it leaving. You get the feeling. And Tony's a strong, fully devoted Christian, but everybody else in the office space is not. A few of them are Christians by name only, cultural Christians, because their parents were cultural Christians, but they don't act any different than anybody else. As a matter of fact, the office is full of cursing, swearing, drunken, strip bar attending men who are just foul all the time, all the way. And Tony's the one who stands out, won't drink with him, won't party with him, won't go to the strip clubs with him. So he's in a hostile work environment, and he's asking God, is it time for me to go, or should I stay? Should I take my network with me? I know what that's going to do to this company and to that man. I know what it's going to do to his family. I know. I'm the greatest sales thing they got going. Is this my mission field? It seems absolutely unproductive. Should I stay? Should I go? And every time he puts that question up to the night sky... It's just another silent night. What should Tony do? Well, remember, different names, but true story. Darius and Michelle, uh, they moved to this town about 10 years ago, and they were drawn in by a thriving economy and a wonderful culture and welcoming hospitality and the beautiful surroundings and, you know, Flavor City, Flavor Town, whatever we call it. Nashville's got all kinds of great food. Uh, Just everything about it sounded wonderful. Moved here, thought it was going to be fantastic. But as they moved here, the busyness of life, the distance they had to commute, started to stack up. They weren't able to break into any key friendships. They know a lot of names, but they don't eat at a lot of tables. As a matter of fact, they feel pretty alone. 10 years into the Nashville experience, and they're wondering if they've just thrown 10 years of their life down a hole because it hasn't been anything like what they thought it would be. They're too busy to enjoy the things they thought they would enjoy here, and they're just really kind of making it by. And the inflation, as it's gone up, has made their salaries feel thin. They don't even ever get out into the countryside to enjoy the beautiful surroundings. They're just kind of making it. But whenever they ask God, is this time to go, they present that question to the sky. It's just another silent 
night. Or a Darius, I mentioned, no, a Dar- that's Darius and Michelle. And when I change your name, sometimes I get confused. So the, another set of changed names, Mikhail and Odessa, real story. Mikhail and Odessa fled here uh, nine years ago. Nine years ago, their country was war-torn in the Civil War. Inflation was about 47%. Children were disappearing off the streets left and right. You can imagine the reasons why. So when they had a relative who was able to get them out, they found their way to the uh, safest border they could find. Then they went on foot to an airport, took a round-trip ticket for their family they knew they wouldn't return on. And they've been living here as refugees since finding all the ways to make sure that they get asylum and everything else. But now that the country has settled down and the Civil War is done, they look at their children and their children only know this culture. The other culture is only a memory. Their children's friends are here. Their children's heart language is now this language, but all of their family is back there. Do they go back to their country? War could explode again. Do they stay here? They're torn. When they ask the sky, all they get is a Another silent night. What do you do when you desperately want a word from God? And that's what's there. Can we be honest for a moment? Have you ever been there? Yeah. Okay. Good. I want to make sure this was for the right people. You know, I do think God speaks, and I think his word is living and active, and I think his scripture can jump off the page to us at times and speak directly to the moment. And I do think he wants to guide, and I do think he directs, and I do believe his spirit lives within us, and I do believe he can speak to us when we need him most. But sometimes, for his reasons, and his reasons alone, he just stays stinking quiet. And when he does, it's maddening. So my question for you tonight is, what do you do in your silent night? And I want to look at these Christmas stories in a sort of a a mingled way. I'm going to weave in and out of all of these different pieces of the Christmas story, if you don't mind me doing it. I'll give you some scripture references here and there, but I think the the pieces I will give to you are so so familiar, you'll know them. Even if you just watched the the best Christmas pageant ever, and you got that version, or the Charlie Brown Christmas uh, uh, special, and you got that version, you've probably heard these phrases before. What do you do in your silent nights? Well, in your silent nights, first of all, show up faithfully. I'm going to share some very simple things and some very straightforward things tonight that in some ways they're almost not worth mentioning. But when I've been in a silent night, somebody needed to say this to me. And when they said it to me the right way, the penny finally dropped. My heart rate slowed down. My my fists unclenched. My jugular stopped pumping (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that tense blood. I wasn't angry at God or the heavens or the sky or fate anymore. Something about some of these simple truths really moved me. First of all, just show up. Just show up faithfully. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Christmas story, Luke 2, 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch 
over their flocks at night. It is the most ordinary, the most simple, the most mundane, the most everyday statement you could make. And yet, Christian just gave us a wonderful sermon last week, if you were here for it, about those stinking shepherds. And I don't think we can ever see those stinking shepherds ever again quite the same way. Those one rung up from the bottom of the ladder people to whom God decided to rip open heaven and give the greatest revelation of his presence and his coming of all history. It's pretty amazing. Uh, Some years ago, when I was reflecting on this, you probably don't remember this, but I gave a little sermon here called Forgotten Seasons, back before I I moved here. It's just... uh, here for a moment and preached on forgotten seasons and the shepherds. And one of the things that, that in that season, I always reflect on one piece of the Christmas story every year that I just have noticed something new. And this was that verse that year. One of the things that's just jumped off the page to me as I was reflecting on it, just thinking shepherds, shepherds, why shepherds? Why these shepherds? What did they do to earn it? What did they do to deserve it? And the question, the answer kept coming back. Absolutely nothing seemed like nothing at all. They're just shepherds. They're probably kind of like some of the guys Tony works with just to agree, right? They're, they're probably rough around the edges a little bit. Maybe not the most holy people, but they, what were they doing? They were out in their fields, keeping watch over their flocks at night. In other words, the only qualifying characteristic of these shepherds was they were where they were supposed to be doing what they were supposed to be doing, period. Full stop. The only qualifying characteristic of the shepherds is they were where they were supposed to be doing what they were supposed to be doing. I'm sure one of the shepherds called in sick that night. You know, I'm just, I got a little achy, chilly thing. I don't know, maybe got a little fever. I can't tell, I'm gonna stay home. I'm sure somebody worked their way out of the rotation for that particular night. Maybe it was a little colder than it was some other nights. I don't know. But the, and if they did, by the way, they didn't see the angels. If they did, they didn't see the greatest revelation of the heavenly host that they would ever, that would ever be seen in their lifetime. They just wouldn't be seen that way again. I mean, the only one that comes close to it is Elijah, right? When it gets unveiled to him and he sees the armies of God surrounding him for a moment, that's the only thing that really comes close to this moment. Or, or maybe John, when he has a vision and he sees heaven. But other than those two, what's bigger than this? What's more glorious than this? All the heavenly hosts proclaiming peace on earth, goodwill to men, by the way. And the only reason they got that revelation is about 2,000 nights in a row, they did what they were supposed to do. Went out in the fields and looked over their flocks. And on night 1999, they had no greater indication that tomorrow was going to be an incredible night than they did on night 1998. It was just the slow, slogging work of life. Have you ever felt that's necessary in your life? Sometimes the most glorious thing a human being can do is the mundane tasks they're supposed to do because for whatever reason, in God's great economy, in God's great universe, they're assigned to me. If I'm not being told to do differently, why wouldn't I go to where I'm supposed to be and do what I'm supposed to do, just show up faithfully? That may not seem like an earth-shaking truth, but you know what I think God wants most of all, most of the time? Consistency. 
consistency. There are a whole lot of people who will sign up at the beginning of any endeavor. They're excited. They're thrilled. The passion of the leader, the inspiration of the stories, the glory of the moment, the vision of what could happen in the future, the promise of being at the front end of something great. The percentage of those people who are actually still there three years later doing the same old boring thing they signed up for in the first place is a lot smaller. Um, Jim Collins in his, one of his books has this great phrase, the million miles march. When he's talking about great companies that actually endure across generations, these that continue to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow in value over and over. And if you just bought these stocks, uh, if you bought these stocks 25 years ago, you'd be so happy right now. You still own it because they just keep doing this. Boom, 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 boom. Slow and steady wins the race. He calls it the million miles march. You just get up the next day, lace up your boots and start walking. Go to bed at night, you do it the next day again. You do it the next day again. You do it the next day again. If God is silent in your life right now, he's probably asking for you to just keep doing what he told you to do a long time ago. He's probably smiling there with the knowing father's smile, waiting for you to do the chores you're supposed to do every week, right? Just show up faithfully. Number two, stay the course. One follows after the other. Show up faithfully, stay the course. In Matthew chapter one, verses 24 and 25, this is Joseph now. When Joseph wakes up from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And this is what was commanded him in the dream. He took his wife, Mary, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. He did exactly what the angel told him to do. Then chapter two, verse 14 and 15, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream again and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and keyword, what's the word there? Remain until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So what does he do? He rose, took the child and his mother by night, that night, by the way, departed to Egypt and keyword, remained there until the death of Herod, years later. Not another town, not another region, another country. With no knowledge of when it would end. So 365 days, another 365 days, another 365 days with no indication that that was going to change. And whenever God told him to go a certain direction, this is what seems to be the pattern in Joseph's life. He just keeps going that way. He shows up faithfully as a carpenter and he had probably no idea realizing, he had no idea, no way of realizing how his faithfulness as a carpenter that caught this poor father's eye who happened to be the father of Mary was the way that he was going to get wrapped into the faithfulness of God to humanity across all of history. He had no idea that showing up at work every day, getting another split thumbnail with a hammer that was misplaced, getting another splinter in another spot he didn't want it, getting another lower paying job 
job than he wished it would be every day, day after day. He had no idea that that faithfulness would wrap him up into the story of the faithfulness of God. But once he gets wrapped into the story of the faithfulness of God and he's told to go a certain direction, he doesn't change course until God tells him to. When it's silent, he just keeps going that away. Uh, an old uh, Navy chaplain met with me once when I was wrestling through some discernment pieces of mine. I was in a silent night. He heard enough of my story to recognize that I was really looking for some direction from God and not receiving it. God was speaking about other things. <laughs> he just didn't want to speak about that. And he told me this story. It's meant a lot to me. I hope it means something to you. He said, in the Navy, when we have a big ship coming into a channel, there's all kinds of chatter on that radio. Two degrees to the left, one degree to, you know, two degrees to the north, one degree to the south, et cetera, et cetera. Half a degree this way. Getting you through the shoals, getting you into the spot where you're going to be in the, the line that you need to be in to get all the way into the channel and get that ship where it should go without it being damaged. It's chatter, 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 chatter until your boat is in the right line. He said this, then it goes silent. Why would we crowd up the airwaves with unnecessary confirming signals when you're already going the right way, the right direction, the right speed? Those airwaves need to be reserved for other things where corrections and, address and things need to be made. They need to be reserved for when you need to call out, if you need a, a clarifying thing about something else. But we're not going to put all kinds of chatter over the radio waves when you're going the right way at the right speed. And then he just got that stinking knowing grin that people get sometimes, and he let it sink in. It was really clear. The problem wasn't that... Um, I didn't know the will of God. It's that I didn't like it. The problem wasn't that I hadn't heard from the voice of the Lord. It's that I wanted them to say something different. The problem wasn't that God had never given me direction. It was that the direction hadn't changed. But my heart had. One of the beautiful things about the story of Joseph is he's not just a shepherd who shows up faithfully. He is, he is of course, the one who helped raise the Son of God to always go God's way and keep going no matter what the cost is. Number three, flows right out of what I just said about Joseph. Attach your heart to God. Attach your heart to God. There's this little uh, phrase in the, in the scriptures from Mary that I just absolutely love. She, she says, well, may it be unto me as your word has spoken. I am your servant. May it be unto me as you have spoken. And then there's another little phrase that I love. When all of this stuff is happening around her, the visits, the visiting of the Magi, the, these Persian, Zoroastrian wise men, it's just this wacky moment in scripture. The only uh, original Persian word that we have in all of the Greek New Testament is Magi. 
So these are people from the east, all the way from Persia, who traveled four, five, six months to get there on foot, maybe longer. And they're in all of their wacky garb with their <laughs> weird beliefs. But a star came to them. And it, it, this was predicted, scholars say, maybe a thousand years before by one of their wise men. Perhaps passed all the way down from Daniel when he was in exile there. So they show up and Mary is watching all of this happen, gold and frankincense and myrrh and, and of course before all the, the wonderful things that have happened before that and she treasures them up and ponders them in her heart. Um, this is a little package that I just got in the mail the other day. These are called torques, screwdriver bits. Are you familiar with those? Anybody familiar with these torques bits? Yeah, I think we have a picture of a torques bit up here. Uh, the reason for this is because we have a lock that's not working on my van door. And when I took that van into the dealership, they said that, you know, I know it's a $100 part and it takes two hours to do the job. The, it'll only cost you 1880. So why a $100 part of a two hour job costs $1,800, I couldn't figure out. So I said, forget it. I'm, not, I'm doing it my stinking self. It's still not quite fixed, but the door's half apart. It's wonderful. And I just needed these little torque bits for those little screws that are in there. The reason you have these torque bits, if you'll put that picture back up, forgive me, Lindsay, put that back up. There's a, a flathead screwdriver only really has two surfaces, one on each side. Uh, a, a Phillips screwdriver still doesn't have as many surfaces as this. This sort of hexagonal star shape has many, much more surface area for that Torx bit to grip on. It's called Torx, so that's the brand, because it gets better torque. Why? Because it has more points of contact. When one starts to slip, the others will grip. If two start to slip, the others will grip. If you've got a flat-edge screwdriver, you only got two points of contact, one starts to slip, out it comes. You're trying to put a lot of torque with a drill on a flat-edge screwdriver. You know how this goes. It's going to fly out all the time, and you're going to be doing all kinds of damage with everything around it. But a Torx bit, the reason why there's that specialized bit, and those specialized screws, is the number of points of contact. When you are in a silent night, increase the number of points of contact between your heart and God's. Find as many points of contact as you can to attach your heart to the heart of God. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but... Uh, attendance at church has been in decline for the United States for quite some time. And not just in terms of number of people who actually go to church, actually that hasn't declined as much as you might think, the number of people who actually go. It's how often they go. So you might say, I go to church, and then one person goes to church two or three times a week and several different things, and maybe four, has different kinds of connections. They have a life group. They go to a prayer meeting. They have a Wednesday night service like this. They go to Sunday morning, etc. cetera. Uh, but then another person goes twice a month to one service on Sunday, in and out, and they're done. Sometimes only once. And that one or two points of contact for that person with the people of God and the calling of God and the heart of God. Now, if there's not any other robust devotional life, if there's no strengthened life in the prayer closet, if there's no praying in the spirit, if there's no leaning into God, if that's the only point of contact that they have, when you hit a silent night, of course, you start to shake your fist at the sky. Your heart's not really attached to the heart of God, not in any deep and lasting way. 
If all you have is a point of contact here or there, what happens when one of those starts to slip? What happens when the pastor who's up here lets you down? And if that pastor's the only point of contact, what happens when the pastor isn't doing so well? What happens when the pastor moves or gets too busy with, I don't know, 372 other people, right? If your only point of contact is your spouse and their faith, and then your spouse goes through a difficult time, it's going to start to slip. If your only point of contact is maybe church and a privatized prayer devotional life, no real close, tight-knit community to hold on to you, then of course, when those points of contact start to slip, your heart will start to slip away from the heart of God. When you hit deep grief, your heart, right? If you need, you need more points of contact in your silent night. So what the temptation is, though, is we hit a silent night when we wish things would be different than they are and God stays quiet. We want things to change, and he doesn't do a thing. Not yet, not now, at least not that we can see. The temptation is to reduce the points of contact. So here's Mary. She thought she was going to marry a, a loving, hardworking man, and their life was going to be stable. They were going to raise kids. They were going to have a beautiful family, and people were going to love them, and they were going to love people. And then next thing she knows, she's told that she's going to have an unplanned pregnancy that she can't explain who's going to believe her. No stinking buddy. It was God. Yeah, right. It was God. She has an unplanned pregnancy that she can't explain to anybody. She has a betrothed man who's now probably going to leave her if he doesn't want to have her stoned or punished in some other way for humiliating him. And then when she finally does get with him, of course, they're going to be ripped out of their hometown. They're going to go to another place where nobody seems to want to take them in. And, and now she's going to have a baby. And you know how that is for a woman who's thinking about having a baby. What do they want to do? Nest. Get the whole house clean, get everything in order, put the nursery together, make sure it's going to be a great environment. And what does she get? A stable full of dung, smelling of animal excrement and allergy-inducing hay. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe she didn't have any allergies, but I kind of wonder, you know, what if Mary sneezing her way through all of this? I don't know impoverished, rejected, abandoned. And she's told from the very beginning her heart's going to be pierced through with the sword. She's told her heart is going to be ruptured. She's told she's going to have deep grief. She's told this isn't going to be just a crystal stare up to glory. And in her dark, silent night, she starts treasuring up every single point of contact she can find. Look, God brought these, maybe they're strange, but they're honoring, worshiping people from a, all the way from afar to bend down at my son's feet and worship my son in front of me. Maybe nobody else will see this or ever know about it, but I'm seeing it. I'm knowing about it. That's the goodness of God. Look at these stinking shepherds coming in. And maybe they're not the best welcome party. Maybe they're not the cleanest welcome party. Maybe they don't know how to throw a baby shower because apparently they didn't bring anything except their jaws hanging open. But there was there they are. And there's someone sent here to welcome my son. 
And even though I thought I was alone and thought God didn't see me and thought I was abandoned, look at the goodness of God showing up here, there, here, there. She finds more points of contact. I kind of think that's what one other shepherd was doing when he was writing the Psalms, David out in his dark and silent night in the hills when he learned to write poetry, learned to make music, and learned to chase after the heart of God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. Forgotten, left out in the fields, all alone as a young boy with lions and bears, literally attacking the very thing he's charged to keep a hold of. Brothers who mock him, a father who forgets him, and then later on a boss who throws a spear at him, and he's out in those silent nights finding every single point of contact he can with the heart of God. If you are in a silent night, how many points of contact do you have? Number four, risk obedience. So this is where a pivot starts to happen. If you are asking God to speak, what speak, what happens if he does? You, you keep knocking on heaven's door, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. What happens when it opens and the message that comes out wasn't quite what you expected? Or maybe it even is the exact thing you asked for and now it's given to you. Oh no, now what am I going to do? Yeah, I've, I've talked to so many people who start a business, for example. They've been praying for it, praying for it, praying for it, praying for it. And the moment comes for them to finally pull the trigger and to step out and to, to really do the hard work and take the risk and it's terrifying now they have the chance and half of them don't take it because when the very thing they were asking for puts itself in front of them it's it's fear inducing you think about mary for a moment an angel comes to her and says you're going to have a child from on high gulp let it be to me as you have said. The shepherds, they're out in their fields. The angels appear. They leave those sheep. I see no marks in the story that they drew straws and whoever took the short straw had to stay behind and not go see what the heavenly host pointed to. This, one, this once in a lifetime, once in a generation, once in a millennia experience, right? No, I think they all went. And if all the sheep were gone when they came back, gobbled up by coyotes or whatever else, they were just going to take the, but they took the risk, right? They left. Joseph embraces shame leaves his livelihood, the place where he can make that livelihood happen, departs his homeland and his culture, doesn't even know how he's going to provide for his now refugee family. When I think about Mikhail and Odessa, man, he is right in their shoes. Risk, obedience. Here's a, a phrase you can write down if you're taking notes tonight. I think it's a helpful one. Obedience is not difficult because God speaks too quietly but because our fears speak too loudly. Very often, the, the difficulty with hearing the voice of God is not the silence of God, but the fear of the human. 
when our anxieties are ramped up, when our anxiety is speaking loudly, it's hard to get past it to hear the quiet, still, calm whisper of God emerging from within. So if you were here Sunday, we talked about the fact that it is not just God with us, that's Emmanuel, but God, anybody remember? Within us, that's one of the greatest promises of the entire gospel. It's not just God with us, Emmanuel, no, it's God within us. Here's the crazy thing about God within us. That means when we ask for God to speak, where does the voice come from? From within. From within. Now, I know that there are a few people throughout human history who have actually experienced an audible voice of God. Most don't. Most just have thoughts. We call them whispers because it's almost as if it was audible. It really can be impressed on you when you're really listening for it, but it's not usually very audible. It's just in there. It's a thought in your mind. And you're having to discern then in between your own thoughts and God speaking. Am I the only Christian doing that? And if that is the case and your anxiety is ramped up and inside your anxiety is speaking like this and God is trying to guide you like this, it will seem like a silent night when the word of God is flowing. And so in that way, discernment of the will of God starts with management of the human heart. Discerning the will of God starts with managing your own emotional world and your anxiety, getting to the point where because you are attaching your heart to God and trusting his goodness, leaning into his goodness and calling on his goodness and living in faith, that anxiety goes down, 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 down because you recognize that the goodness of God will accomplish good and surely you will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living and you start quoting those voices, verses back to yourself, right? And speaking down the anxiety because we don't have a spirit of fear. We, have a, we, we don't have a spirit of fear, Right? That's not the spirit that is given to us. And so when fear is ramping up, we know that's not what God's trying to do. God's not trying to just throw fear into our heart. If fear is driving us, fear is clenching us, something else is happening. And so we need to learn to risk obedience, but it's hard to risk that obedience if we didn't do the thing before. Finding as many points of contact as we can with the heart of God. While we stay faithful and show up, and stay the course. Because then if over time, consistently, 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 the automatic thing for us is to trust the goodness of God. Then when the voice of God comes and he asks us to do something that bears significant risk, we can actually step out in faith. Here's a little uh, formula or definition of faith that I was given years and years ago. It's meant a lot to me. Faith equals risk. If you want to live by faith, you're going to have to take a risk. When God does speak, I think he speaks in such a way that it always still requires faith. Because faith, for whatever reason, is the muscle God wants to build in us, perhaps because it's the inoculation against the sin that toppled Satan and one third of heaven. I don't know to have a lack of faith in the goodness of God. Maybe that's just the reason he's inoculating us against that. I don't know. But faith 
is the muscle he wants to exercise. He's not going to give us direction in a way that doesn't require risk, doesn't require faith. It is going to risk something for you to do what God wants you to do. If your silent night calms down enough that the message comes through from heaven, whether it's a heavenly host or a whisper, which is much more likely, you will risk something. You'll risk your time. You'll risk your money. You'll risk your relationships. Sometimes enough risk is there for us to not do what God's will is just by the risk being, I'm not sure if I'm hearing him right. And so we wait again, and then we wait again. Maybe that was him. Maybe that wasn't him. Maybe that was him. Maybe that wasn't him. James chapter 1, have you read that recently? Whoever wants wisdom should ask the Lord, who gives without finding fault, generously, right? Without reproach. But you should not doubt. The one who doubts is like one tossed to and fro on the waves. A double-minded man should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it's in my mind kind of like this. Lord, I pray that you just give me wisdom about name the thing, my marriage, whatever else, my workplace, my friendships, my, my parents, whatever. Give me wisdom. Things come to mind immediately. Well, maybe that wasn't the Lord. Well, maybe it was the Lord. Maybe it was the Lord. Maybe it wasn't the Lord. And you're tossed to and fro. How can you receive anything from the Lord when your anxiety is bouncing it back and forth that way? So you get yourself to a place of calm. You get your place to a, a, a point of surrender. You attach yourself to the goodness of God. You speak the scriptures out loud again to yourself. You pray in the spirit as you've been, uh, as you've been enabled to do. You, you listen for the spirit as you've been enabled to do. And you ask God to give you wisdom. And you take note of what comes to mind. And then you take the risk. If it's not sin, why wouldn't you? Only one reason. You're scared. So show up faithfully, stay the course, attach your heart to God, risk obedience. Number five, simple. I'm, these are all simple things. Uh, I'm not apologetic, but they are simple things. Practice the presence of God. Of course, you know that I'm referencing that great spiritual classic by Brother Lawrence, Practice the Presence of God, same title. Uh, one of the most republished spiritual formation classics of all time, perhaps the most, very thin paperback book, a monk who uh, decided that he was going to try to make every minute of every day a practice of the presence of God. When he was washing dishes, he would pray prayers like, Lord, wash out my heart, cleanse out the inside of me. When he was uh, fixing shoes and mending things, he would say, Lord, fix what is broken in my spirit. Fix what is sinful in me. Attach me to yourself. He found all kinds of ways, sometimes wordless ways, even just breathing to remind himself that he was breathing in the presence of God, holding on to God, breathing out his fears to the Lord and his insecurities to the Lord. And it became one of the most ground-shaking truths that the abbot there kept getting responses from people saying, why, why is this guy so different? Every time I'm around this guy, Brother Lawrence, I just feel the presence of God. So we started to interview this lowly monk. And the interviews and the letters that went back and forth became that book, Practice the Presence of God. He didn't even write a book. Someone wrote it for him. Something changes when we remember that God is here. I've talked about this in so many different ways, even just the last year, but I think it's important to keep saying because there might not be any other more important truth than this. 
In your silent night, God is there. I just remembered as I was thinking about this little truth when uh, one of my dearest, dearest, dearest friends lost his wife to cancer. This was a second close friend who I've gone through that with. So second time around, I knew the deep pain at some uh, greater level than I did the first time. I had to get an education the first time through. Um, But when Rod lost his wife to cancer, it was a stunning level of pain. Couldn't sleep in his own bed. That's where they used to sleep together. Would sleep on the couch if he could sleep at all. Lost all desire to eat. If we went to a restaurant two weeks later, three weeks later, I'd have to order a cup of fruit for him and say, just eat that, if nothing else. Just eat the little, you gotta eat something. You have to. Take it like medicine, just eat the fruit. Didn't see any reason to keep going on with life very much at all. Christian, God-loving person, totally devoted to the Lord. But the grief was so raw and so all-consuming, he couldn't hear the voice of God, couldn't sense the presence of God, had anger, uh, all kinds of emotions sweeping through him. You know what I did sometimes? I went to his house, into his living room. I walked through that little curved doorway that walked into his living room, and there were his blankets and pillows on the bed, not made, and him in rumpled clothing in the chair and the other space over there with dark circles under his eyes, and I'd sit in the chair. I'd say hello, I love you, Rod. Give him a hug or whatever. He'd sit down, I'd sit down, and that was it. I'd just be there. When we went fishing uh, another month or so later, I remember we were going to a little river in Ohio a few hours away. Most of the ride was silent. Most of the day was silent. But that's what he needed. Sometimes in our silent night, God knows we don't need words. We need presence. Sometimes we're asking him for something he knows won't help us. Why did Mary die? Maybe he knows it won't help us. Or that we could never understand. So practice the presence of God. Why? When you practice the presence of God, then you know that you are connected to him even when he's not speaking. And the more you practice the presence of God, the more your heart is attached to him in multiple points of contact, the more you're ready to receive from him when he's ready to deliver, the more you recognize his presence from other presences, the more you recognize his voice from other voices. Let me just give you three little easy ways. If you're in the middle of a silent night, you can work on that even this week. Okay, real practical, real nuts and bolts. First, breathing prayer. Have we done this together before? It's real simple. You breathe in for three counts, recognizing God's presence. You can do that now. Hold for three counts, enjoying his presence, just enjoying that he's there, and then release 
for three counts. As you breathe out, release your anxieties to him. No words necessary. You breathe in, three counts. Breathing in the presence of the Spirit of God. You hold for three counts, enjoying his presence. And then you breathe out, releasing your anxieties to him. It's not mindless meditation. It's not emptying of yourself. None of those things do I really believe in. It's a filling of yourself with the presence of God. It's a recognition of the presence of God. It's a turning of your heart to God. Sometimes there's two, three minutes of breathing prayer when I'm just focusing on God and no words shared, just me and him. And that's it. My shoulders drop an inch farther than I knew they could drop. And stress falls off of me at a level I didn't even know it was there. And a sense of like, you know how Christmas morning kind of feels sometimes with someone that you really love when all of the busyness is done and the presents are done and you're just sitting there and you catch each other's eye and then you stay quiet, but it's not an empty quiet? That. Breathing prayer. Next one. Prayer journaling. Let's say you do breathing prayer for three minutes and then prayer journaling um, for five. So if you're breathing prayer, you're focusing on the presence. Prayer journaling, you're focusing on the voice. Ask God to tell you whatever he wants to tell you. And then as thoughts start coming to mind, write them down. And if you write better handwritten, then write handwritten. I write fast when I type. So sometimes for me, prayer journaling is on a computer. Because I, I just get into the flow and I write it all down. I just write everything and anything that God seems to be saying to me. And it just kind of flows. And now I have it saved in a spot where I can return to it and I can tell uh, what is going on with uh, the, the voice that is coming to me. I can see what he said before. I can see what he's pointing me to. I can stay on the same course he directed me to. I can see that he keeps repeating the same thing sometimes. Prayer journaling. Do you have a prayer journal? Get one. If you're a tactile person and you like to feel things, well, then go to Barnes & Noble or go on Amazon somewhere. Get a nice one. Get yourself one that you're excited to see. Spend the money on your relationship with the Lord and hand right. Make it what will make you happy. If, if you're not a tactile person, then at least open a text file. Costs you nothing. Save it. Prayer journal. Put a date on it and start typing in it. Make sure you say. Um, third. Don't forget this one, journal reviewing. If you're breathing prayer for three minutes, prayer journaling for five minutes, then review your journal for two minutes. It's only 10 minutes of time. When I look back through my prayer journals and I read things, I almost always realize I forgot he said that. I forgot he said that. But I also review what I just wrote and I say, Lord, is this faith or is this fear? Was this my voice or was this your voice? Most of the time, I'm marking through a few things, deleting a few things, and realizing, boy, I started with the voice of God, and I ended with the voice of fear. And it was, I can tell when it shifted right there, when it was clear what I was supposed to do, and I'm scared to death to do it. And I could just see it in my journal, like, okay, that's not God, that is God. That's not God, that is God. So I can do that faith or fear reviewing, and then I can also do the retrospective, like a year ago, this is what God said. Am I doing it? Well, if I'm not, why? Is there fear involved? Am I living in faith or am I living in fear? What am I afraid of? What's holding me back? What's keeping me from doing what God asked me to do? I think very often it's not a silent night that we're facing, but it is a quiet one. And until we quiet ourselves, 
we won't hear the whisper of God. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, there's this verse, I think it's in Jeremiah. Go look for the ancient ways. Stand at the crossroads. Remember this one? And whether you turn to the left or the right, you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. I love that verse because that means even if I get this discernment thing wrong, even if I think I heard from God and I didn't, as long as I didn't do the sin thing, well, I didn't offend God. And if I did sin, still, you'll hear a voice behind you saying, okay, 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 okay. Now this is the way. Walk in it. You know how when you go the wrong way with Google Maps and it's redirecting, redirecting, and then it starts giving you a new way? It never runs out of ways. It will always keep finding you a new way to get back on course, a new way to get back on course. There's grace, grace, grace upon grace. But now here's the beautiful thing in the New Testament. It's not a voice behind me saying this is the way. It's a voice within me. And that voice never leaves. Lord, I just pray for any person in this room right now who is experiencing a silent night. Not the kind of silent night we want to sing about that's beautiful and serene and calm. But the kind of silent night we hate. Why won't you just say something? The Tonys of the world in a job they want to leave. The Dariuses of the world and Michelles who are in a place they thought would be wonderful, but now it, they're seeing all the warts and wrinkles of the place they thought was going to be perfect. The Mikhail's and Odessa's who feel separated from a sense of home, isolated. And for many other kinds of things going on, job changes, calling, marriage struggles, financial situations. For every silent night in the room, I ask you, Holy Spirit, to whisper right now, Would you just tell them I am here? And we pray in this Christmas season that we wouldn't just listen to the Christmas story about some time ago, these people who happened to be somewhere near the will of God, but that we would see in them exemplars and possibilities for ourselves, ways of living in by faith to the will of God, to stay connected to the heart of God, to practice the presence of God. Lord, I do pray that in our silent night, you would give us a quiet night and that your presence would speak to us when we need it. In Jesus' name.